Well, we find ourselves in a short series. Uh, uh, it's short for us because normally the series we go, we work through full books of the Bible. So we're working really just through the month of July in a series entitled All In. And that All In speaks of being fully committed to Jesus Christ. And we're using really kind of parts of David's life uh, to really illustrate what a life lived all in actually looks like. And in week one, we said to be all in with God means that we must submit to the wisdom of God. That is, that basically is, is you have millions of decisions to make in this lifetime, and you're either going to make them based on the world's wisdom or on God's wisdom. And so the second week, just last week, we looked at the second mark, and that was this, that if we're going to be all in, live our lives all in to, for God, that we must pursue the glory of God. The temptation of this life, this one life that we've been given by God is to be lived for our glory, to draw attention to ourself rather than trying to draw attention to God and, and how glorious he ultimately is. Now this week, we come to our third mark of what it means to be all in. And here it is. It's to trust in the provision of God. It's to trust in the provision of God. Inside of all of us, there's a desire for us to be trusted. Uh, if you have two friends, they're whispering over into the side in the corner. Uh, you may see them whispering and you go over to them and go, hey, what you guys whispering about? And they sit there and go, well, it's a secret. We can't tell you. But uh, well, you could tell me. Trust me. I won't tell anyone. We, we want to be trusted. There may be a young person who is here that maybe next week they're going to ask their mom and dad, hey, can we extend my curfew a little bit on Friday night? My friends are going to be going out to the beach unsupervised in the dark. I'd really like to be able to go. If that's good, parents might say, no, I don't think that's very wise at all. And the, and the, and the child will be offended. They'll go back and they go, what is it? Don't you, don't you trust me? Answer is, no, we don't trust you. That's that, let me just answer it straight up front. And so there's other times, of course, that we're looking for people to trust us. We try to train our children when they're young to trust us. That's why we take these very small body children and we place them on elevated positions. And then we step back and we say, jump, daddy will catch you. Trust me, right? And probably not the best way to do it. But again, we want to be trusted. The difficulty is uh, with trusting people is, let's be honest, they just prove oftentimes not to be very trustworthy. That's a difficulty for us. I know when I was in high school, I went to a Christian school. And, um, and every fall, we would have this little fall retreat. It, the whole idea was to kind of get alone, draw closer to God, draw, cl draw closer to each other. And this one theme for the fall retreat was actually trust. And so we implemented what was called trust falls. You may have heard that before. Um, and basically what you do is there's one, one person or victim uh, who basically crosses their arms like this. And, and people stand behind them, two rows of people. And they'll basically say, um, you kind of go through the statement like ready and they say ready and you say fall and they say or falling they say fall and you fall back into their arms they catch you ever so graciously and put you back up safely that's ideally how that's supposed to work well it was my turn to fall and so I had all my good buddies so I knew that I was good they were all behind me and so I got up in front of them or in, in turned my back to them and said y'all ready ready falling fall and I fell and every one of them backed up and let me fall square on my back and there were no problems uh, physically, mentally, that's a different issue. But, uh, but really, I, I wanted to yell at them. I wanted to be angry with them, but I couldn't be because the wind was knocked out of me. So I did a lot of this. <laughs> I did a lot of that at them. And they're finally feeling a little bit bad, or at least it seems like they are. And they're saying things like, bro, we're so, so, 
We're so sorry. We shouldn't have done that. We're so wrong. Nothing says you're sorry like laughing, right? And so they said, we're so sorry. Please give us another chance. Please. And I go, I'll never trust you again. You're dead to me. Come on, bro. This is for our friendship. We're friends forever. Of course, I don't even know where they are now, but friends forever. And so, so we said, okay. And so I get up and obviously I'm very hesitant to be able to trust them again. So I get up though at that particular point and I go, are you ready? They go, ready. I go, are you sure? Yes, we're sure we're ready. Falling, fall. And so I very, very slowly start creeping back. And sure enough, I fall and they moved back and did it again. <laughs> Fell on my back once again. And so it is because of this exercise of trust falls, which is intended to cause us to build trust in other people that I no longer trust any of you, all right, for the rest of my life. And the truth is, this same exact situation probably has never happened to you, but you've been in several situations where you have found yourself where somebody's let you down, or somebody that you've trusted, or somebody that you've committed to really made a decision or did something that you, that you really can't find yourself or have a hard time trusting people now because of what ultimately had happened. The difficulty of that is not only does it make relationships difficult, but it also makes our relationship with God difficult. Because sometimes that lack of trust often begins to be pushed over into our relationship with God. And so the key that we need to understand is God really wants us to trust him. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Another word for faith is, in fact, trust. We should trust God. He wants us to trust us in everything, in every area, and at all times. The, the big difference really at the end of the day between men and God, obviously, is that God proves to be 100% trustworthy. If he tells us to fall, he will indeed catch us every single time without fail. And so this is the God that we ultimately serve. And what we find is in this passage, David had to learn this very lesson to trust God's provision for his life. And he learns it at a very difficult time in his life, as we most often do. What we found is last time that we saw David, it was in 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you remember this, he was really on top of the world. He had just defeated Goliath and everybody loved him. Saul loved him. The people loved him. They, they were singing his praises. They were actually making up and singing songs about him, that Saul had killed his thousands and David had killed his tens of thousands. So everything started to look great, except the fact that Saul began to become envious of David and he wanted to kill him. He wanted to get rid of him. He was a threat to Saul and to his kingdom and to his throne. And so what he does is he tries to kill him, not once, but twice with a spear. Fortunately, David moves out of the way. And finally, it dawns on David, it's probably not safe for me to be here. So he begins to run. So from chapter 17, really, to chapter 24, David's doing a whole lot of running. He's just running for his life across the countryside. And in all Saul's doing is he's either fighting the Philistines or he's trying to chase and find and kill David. Those are the two things he does. And during this time, David begins to learn to trust. And we're going to see the evidence of him trusting in God's provision in the midst of this very vulnerable, difficult time in his life. Listen, church, if you are going to trust God, if you're going to trust in his provision, meaning that you will trust that he will give you what you need when you need it, then there are two things that you and I are going to have to do. The first thing we have to do is we have to resist a common temptation. We have to resist 
a common temptation. Now look at verse one, if you will. It says, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel, and he went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, and there was where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, we need to say something about that phrase. Paul went in to relieve himself. Uh, I will say that this is the translation that the ESV gives it. The King James Version actually says that he went to, uh, to cover his feet. Here's the disagreement amongst scholars. Some scholars suggest that this is him just going in and taking a nap. He's tired of chasing uh, Saul so, or David, so he wants to go and rest. Others, and people that I really, really respect, ultimately say, no, it sounds exactly the way that ESV says it, that he went in to use the potty. That's, sorry, I don't know how else to say it. Use the restaurant, relieve himself. There, that's biblical, that he actually went in. And I think that this is most likely the right interpretation. Brown driver Briggs, Hebrew and, and, and English lexicon, literally translate this to cover the fee, meaning that this was a euphemism for using the restroom. Now, if that's what it means, and I think it does, then I'm a little bit in trouble because when I was in seminary and I was in class learning how to preach, yes, I took a class on how to preach. Uh, when I was learning, they told us, whatever you do, stay away from any mention of scatology. In other words, don't use any reference of the, ba of the bathroom. Don't talk about the bathroom. Don't use bathroom humor from the pulpit. It is not fitting to the calling of a preacher. Just flat out, don't do it. But they didn't tell me what happens when the Bible mentions it. So I think the only way to deal with it is deal with it very carefully. Here is Saul. He's been running and chasing after David. He goes into a cave and he finds himself, he's relieving himself, and he finds himself actually in a vulnerable position without his knowing it. Because in the very cave that he chose to go into, in the very back in the recesses and darkness of the cave, is David and his men, the very men that he's trying to kill. Now, he can't see them because they're in the darkness. He can, they can see him because he's entering in into the light. And the men that are with him at this point, David's men, see this as the providential hand of God at work. They actually see that God is setting all this up. That God is basically deliver, delivering Saul into their hands so that David could kill him. He says here in verse 4, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now it seems as though they're almost quoting from Scripture. Here's the problem. There is no Scripture that says this that God had ever mentioned this or given this promise to David. So what we begin to think is, well, if it's not scripture, then what is it? Well, it could have been false prophets, prophecy. Perhaps a false prophet wanted to give them and wanted to say to them what they wanted to hear. We have plenty of that going on today. Or it could be something else. It could be their interpretation of the events, basically saying, this is what God is saying to you. This is the day that God is delivering your enemy into his hands. Well, whatever the situation it seems as though what they're saying is, it's undeniable, this is an opportunity that God himself has given you. You need to be able to take it. Why? Because remember what God's promise was to David, that David was going to be the king of Israel. And they've been praying all this time as they've been running. If you look actually in the Psalms, all these Psalms are about God and, and God delivering him and him running. It happens. He, he wrote those Psalms during this period of time when he's running for his life in the midst of his difficulty, believing that 
that his life is going to be snuffed out at any point by Saul. And that's when he begins to give up these prayers, these psalms to God. And now everybody that's looking at it is saying, this is an answer to your prayer. This is how God is going to end your suffering. This is how you're no longer going to go through difficulty in that God is going to give and provide for you the promise that he has made that you are going to be the king. Look, David, you can't go to, you can't be king if there's already a king. Therefore, this is an opportunity to be able to wipe him out at this particular point to take him out. And so they sit back and they, and it seems like at least for a moment that he buys into it. The Bible says, then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Let me tell you what's going on. When he sneaks up and cops off that robe, this is a symbolic gesture. We know this because earlier, if we had gone through the entire thing, we'd find out that when, when, when God had rejected Saul from being king over Israel, the prophet Samuel actually went to tell him and he tore his clothes. By ripping and tearing his clothes, it was, a, it was a symbolic gesture suggesting to him that, guess what? That the kingdom is being torn from you, Saul. So here's another symbolic gesture. He's in essence saying that it's being cut away from you. You're being cut off from your position as king. God's cutting you off. But when he does it, he immediately feels convicted. He cuts it and all of a sudden his heart begins to be struck and he begins to feel con the conviction of God and he explains why. Verse six, he said to the men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. And then in the next verse, what we find is he begins to talk all them back. So he's not going to lay a hand on Saul, but now he has to convince the rest of the men not to lay a hand on Saul. So I, I could only imagine how this is going down. He can't sit there and say, keep your hands off him because Saul's going to know. So this is how I picture it in my sanctified imagination. David's standing in front of them going, you, you've probably done that with your children before, right? Have you been out in public and they're doing something and you're like, you know, you, you've done the same thing. No words. You're just very, you're, you're ready to be able to tell them to stop doing what they're doing. This could very well be happening. I don't know. That's Mike, not the Bible. And so here's what happened. It works. He restrains them. Uh, then note this, and Saul rose up and he left the cave and he went out his way. Here's what we find. We find here that this is the same situation with two groups of people. You have David's men and you have David. They see a particular circumstance, circumstance, they see an opportunity, and they see it completely different. One sees it as the providence of God, of God giving and providing for them what it is that they have wanted. And the other looks at the same exact situation and sees that this is not an opportunity for the glory of God, but an opportunity to sin. It's two different things. Why does, why does David see it differently? Really, to be honest with you, is because he knows the word of God. He understands what God's word says. Notice that he mentions the fact that this was God's anointed. In the word of God, at least in two different places, in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, as well as in, in Psalms, God gives the express command to his people not to touch God's anointed. Now, who, who are God's anointed? There were those that God had specifically set apart for his purposes. And so what he would do is they would usually take a prophet. The prophet would come. They would anoint them with oil. And then they'd be set apart for the purposes and the will of God. So to stand up against one of God's prophets, one of God's anointed, was ultimately 
ultimately to stand up against God himself. And that was a dangerous thing to do. And this is precisely what had happened to Saul. Saul had been anointed by the prophet Samuel, had been set aside for the work of God. David then recognizes this can't possibly be God. Yes, it's going to relieve my suffering. Yes, it's going to advance me to the throne quicker. But I cannot take it because in order to obtain God's promise for me, I have to break his commands. Therefore, this cannot be the avenue by which God wants to take me to the throne. And that's the danger. And he comes back and he says, and this is the way to say it, if you have to break God's law to receive God's provision, then guess what, church? It's not his provision. One author says it this way, the end that God has ordained must be reached by the means that God approves. Here's the temptation that you and I face every single day. You ready? Especially when we're desperate, especially when we're hurting, especially when we just want relief. And we've been praying for a very, very long time for God to be able to take the pain or the difficulty or to, to answer a particular prayer, to be able to meet a particular need for us. Here's the temptation. The temptation is to grasp at something in sin rather than to wait on God in faith. David understood that, David understood this, and he knows that the will of God was for him to be king. But he also knows that this was not the way to do it because he would have to sin in order to ultimately obtain it. And so here is a danger that oftentimes we, you're in the midst of trouble, you're in the midst of difficulty today, whatever that is. I, I would love to be able to say, who, who, you know, people, people think they're, they're prophetic when they get up and go, you know, I just got a feeling that there are people here that are having difficulties. How many of y'all have, I just feel that God's telling me you're having difficulties. And you're like, you had to be a prophet to know that we're going through difficulties. And then, and then what has happened is people are looking, and what we begin to do is we have this kind of theology of open-door theology. You, you understand that? You know what that is? We're just looking for an open door. If God wants me to do it, open door. If God doesn't want me to do it, close door. Uh, have you guys never heard that? You're like, yes, because I think this is probably the way you live. And so we just sit there, and you go, close the door, open the door. This is great. I'm not saying that this is always wrong. O opening a door is basically just opportunity, Right? Well, guess what? There's a lot of opportunity to sin, but it doesn't mean that it's ultimately from God. And, and so, so what we have to do is sometimes when it's an open door, it, it is right for us to be able to sit back and pray for God to open doors for things that we already know clearly he commands us to do. That is right. For example, if you're, if you're, if you're praying for those around you in, 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 that you love, God, give me an opportunity to really sit down and really share the gospel with him. Spot on, the will of God, go for it. That's a door, opportunity, go for it. But when an opportunity opens, and yet at the same time there's an opportunity, and yet you have to sin in order to receive something that you say is of God or for him to answer a particular prayer, then again, that is not God. David was able to recognize in all of these opportunities in life what was God and what was not. What was God's provision that he should take and what was danger for him not to take because he knew that he would ultimately regret it later in life. And of course, he didn't always take that advice. Sometimes we refer to this as really the sin of the shortcut. The sin of the shortcut. We just want God. We're so, we're so troubled. We're so, we have so many pains, aches, pains, difficulties in our life. We just want the pain to stop. We want the difficulty to be able to stop. How do I get there as quick as I possibly can? Well, what we do is there's a shortcut and what happens is there's always gonna be a temptation to be able to take it. This was certainly true for David and it's certainly true for Jesus Christ. Not only David, but the son of David. 
Do you remember when Jesus, before he began his public ministry, he basically was in the wilderness for 40 days, which means he found himself vulnerable. He was not eating for 40 days. He was worn out. He was tired, much like David had been wandering in that wilderness. There's some parallels here. So he's vulnerable at this point. When you're tired and, you're, and, and you get hangry, you know what I'm talking about, right? My wife gets hangry. She never gets angry. It's always food-induced or lack of. And so uh, I'm not telling on her. She'll admit it, all right? And so, so this is, this is kind of how it works. Well, he's there. Satan comes to him in his vulnerable state, and what does he begin to do? He begins to tempt him not once but three times. And he gets to the third temptation, and this is what he says in Matthew chapter 4. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Do you see what he's doing? Now, God already has all the kingdoms of the world for him. He says, I've given you a name above every name. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, of course, Lord. It is his because he is the creator by whom, for whom, and through whom all things have been made. But there is a special granting of God of him the right to be able to take the title deed of the earth and the book of Revelation and to rule over all, all because of his perfect submission to the Father. Are you following me with that? No, okay, just pick up from here and keep moving forward. And so it is going to be his right, but what is God-given has to be God-governed. He can't just snatch it and grasp whatever it is and say, there we go. Now I finally got what the Father had promised me. What did he do? He had to submit himself to God. And so when he speaks back to the devil, he doesn't go, hey, bro, you don't have the right to give me stuff. You don't have to give me right for power and, and riches. He doesn't argue that with them. Instead, what he does, he goes through Scripture and he says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. What he says to him is, this cannot be God's way of me obtaining his promise because I would have to lie and I would have to sin against the very God who has promised me these things. Therefore, it cannot be him. Let me give you just two very simple examples. And this is one of those sermons that I really have to trust the Holy Spirit to be able to work in your life, to be able to really bring about uh, the specific application. But let me just give you two simple applications. One can be in relationships. As a young man or a young woman who really wants to be married and nothing wrong with that, that's a wonderful thing. Marriage is a gift of God. And they really, really just want to be married. And so they begin to pray and they have everybody in the small group and everybody that they know, pray that God will send me a husband. Just pray that God will send me. Okay, let's join in that. We'll pray that God will send uh, a husband. The first guy that comes along who has a head on his shoulders and two arms, they're like, this is from God. Look at him. He's good looking. Well, he's not really good looking, but he's a guy. So that's great. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to marry. This must be from God. It's got to be. I prayed for it. Here it is. God just delivered him. He's showing interest in everything. Must be God's will. And then you begin to sit and you begin to do some counseling and you find out that this guy hates God, doesn't believe in God, isn't a believer in Jesus Christ. And yet the person still claims, I know this is God. I know this is what God has given me. This is God's provision for me. I prayed, and this guy appeared out of nowhere. He, out, of, out of nowhere, it must be God. And then you try to lean them, and you try to explain to them, this can't be God's will for you in God fulfilling and meeting your need and providing for you. Why? Because to marry this guy, you'd be unequally yoked, which means you'd have to sin in order to obtain his promise. And so let me... Maybe that doesn't make sense. So uh, let me give you one more. It's kind of like jobs. For 26 years, I've been trying to disciple people and help them. And every time they sit there and go, hey, we're going to leave. Why? Well, we've been praying for a job and we found one. Where is it? Well, it's in such and such a state. 
and we're going to be moving away. Well, that's exciting. That's really good. So you feel like God, that's an answer to your prayers that God's going to give you this job. Yes, because I haven't been making much money here. I need to make more, m- much more money and, and I hate what I'm doing. So I pray and God gave me a job. I love that job. I love what I would be doing. I'm making three times more than what I am. And I sit there and said, that's how you determine whether it's God's will for you to take the job or not. They go, yeah. I go, is there any, any, any difficulties with the job or any challenges? He goes, yeah. He goes, I'm probably never going to see my wife and children again. And I probably will never be able to gather and to be able to be in the house of God uh, ever again. But that's okay. I know this is from God, right? And then you begin to just use the word the same way David did, same way that Jesus does. And say, well, brother, what about raising your kids in the admonition of Jesus Christ? How do you raise them if you never see them? How do, you, how do you not forsake the assembling of yourselves? If this is of God, why in the world are you having to break God's law in order to be able to obtain what it is that you say that God has for you? And that's the difficulty. And bottom line, church, what we need to do is we need to come to understand that there's always gonna be this constant temptation for you and I in our life to constantly grasp whatever comes our way to be able to relieve our hurt, to be able to relieve the difficulties that we in, to grasp at something without even discerning whether it's truly of God or not. And instead of grasping in it, what we need to be is we need to be able to learn to rest in faith in God and wait on him. There's a second thing that we see in this text, and that is not only do we see that we are supposed to, excuse me, what was the first point? Resist a common temptation. Sorry, I couldn't think of it for a moment. The second thing we see here is to rely on a confident conviction. Now, you can imagine that when the the shock on Saul's face when he leaves the cave, and all of a sudden from the same cave that he just relieved himself in, that he hears the voice of David. And David, he turns around and David falls down to the ground. He puts his face to the ground, and he begins to lay out this powerful defense of his innocence. And in verse 9, here's what he says. He says, And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Now, this is true. If you were to go back again in 1 Samuel, you'd find out that all these people were whispering in Saul's ear, telling him that David was up to no good. It just wasn't true. So David, in his defense, begins to lay out this, like a seasoned attorney, this airtight case for his innocence. He says to him, he says, the Lord gave you into my hand and, and, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said that I will, put, <clears throat> I will not put out my hand against you, uh, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, he's based on the word of God. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in your hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. So again, he lays out an airtight case. Imagine Saul's face at the moment when he holds up, David holds up the end of his robe and he sits there and he says, hey, I cut this off from you. And he looks down and he says, sure enough, he's thinking to himself, he could have easily not cut that, but cut my throat and it could have been all over with. I could have been dead at that particular moment. So he sees the evidence that what has been said is not ultimately true. So the question here is, is why, why didn't David do it? Why didn't he take his life? He had an opportunity. It was going to end up ending, ending his suffering. Well, we've already kind of answered it, haven't we? Because it was against the law of God. And he would rather suffer and be obedient than be disobedient and relieve his temporal suffering. You see that. We get that. But what else is there? Maybe he's confident in his, argue, in his ability to argue and debate. Maybe he's thinking, hey, if I just argue with this guy enough and debate enough, I can convince him, I can persuade him to stop chasing me. 
Or he could sit back and go, you know what? I think there's still a little bit of good inside of Saul, way down deep in there, just like the Grinch. Just, you know, if I just give him enough good stuff, all of a sudden his heart will start growing two and three times too big. And maybe that's what's going to happen here. No, I don't think that's what happens at all. See, he is able to resist the common temptation that we talked about, to grasp in sin rather than to wait in faith because of his confident conviction that God would do what he says that he will do, that God will supply his every need. He will give him what he needs when he needs it. Beloved, I cannot tell you how important this truth is for you. I cannot begin to tell you that God would not withhold any good thing from you, anything. He knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly when you need it. If you need it, he will give it. If he doesn't give it to you, you do not need it, period. And you can be assured it is not good for you. But you will never be able to resist that common temptation unless you have that that conviction in your heart that that's who the God you serve is. And this is the conviction that David had in verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you and the Lord avenge me against you. By my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do, I, do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea? May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Here's what he's absolutely confident in. He's oftenly confident in that God's promise for him is going to come true, that he will be king, but he is not going to take a shortcut. He's not going to grasp. He's going to allow God and trust God to give him what he needs when he needs it. I was trying to figure out something that I could ultimately really illustrate or, or show something that was completely and utterly trustworthy, something that you can really trust for. Well, the old saying is, well, one thing that you can always trust in is death and taxes. Right? And that's that old saying, but I'm not so sure we want to really talk about God in terms of death and taxes. I don't think we want to put them together. And the trouble is the reason it's so hard to find something that is truly trustworthy is because nothing in this world is. Everything is fallen. Everything is decayed. Everything is falling apart. So how do you address that? Well, you can't really describe something like God, but you can say, you can show what trust is. For example, I think the thing that I may trust most in my life, obviously it's not people during trust falls, but what it is, is it is definitely the chair in my office. I really trust the chair in my office. No, it's not a weird relationship between me and my chair. It's just the fact that I know that every, every Monday morning, beginning of Monday morning, I come into my office and I plop my whole weight down on that chair. And there has not been one time that I've ever sat there and thought, man, I hope that chair can hold my weight. I hope it's gonna be okay today. There was never a time where I went back in and just kind of pushed on it just a little bit, going, oh, buddy, I hope this is gonna go okay. There was never a day that I sent Pastor Nick or Dan in there and said, hey, you mind sitting in that for just a moment? Why? No, I'll tell you in a moment. Yeah, there was never that type of thing. I just go in and plop my whole weight down. Don't try to keep any of it off it. Just, Just sit and wait. And this is kind of a picture in a way of what God desires from us. He wants you to trust him by placing your entire weight on him. Everything, everything about yourself every day, everything you have, everything that you don't have, when he gives it, when he doesn't give it, knowing because he is a good God and he knows what is ultimately best. You know, there is in one way to apply this and that is for folks that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. 
For those that don't know Christ and never come to faith in him, there is a really weird false gospel that really has implemented our entire culture here. And I think it's a mix between like Catholic belief, I think, and maybe bad Baptist theology. Here's what it is. You need Jesus Christ and you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the other thing. But you also need to be a good person to be accepted by him. If you go to Christ for salvation and you repent of your sins and you call out to him, if you place your faith in anything you do apart from placing your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, that is not saving faith. And why do I bring that up? One is because some need to be saved and some need to correct that and understand, wait a minute, I'm trusting in other stuff. I'm trusting in my own goodness. I'm not good enough. Only God is good enough. You need to be saved. Today's a day of salvation. But it's also good for the believer because if we can trust him with our eternity and we can trust him for eternal life and we can trust him that he did not hold back his very best in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, why would he hold back any good thing to his children? He wouldn't unless what it is that we want so badly is not good for us. Now, some are gonna sit back and say, well, wait a minute, there's plenty of things that I'm praying for right now. And I can't answer every theological point on this, but some people are gonna sit back and they're gonna say to themselves, well, wait a minute, I'm disappointed in God because I'm suffering right now. I'm in the midst of trouble right now. Why isn't he giving me what I'm asking for him to be able to give? And what I would say is God hasn't let you down. Your bad theology has let you down. Because God has never promised you an easy life, a pain-free life, a suffering-free life. That is something that bad theology has worked its way into your mind. God has never promised those things to us. But what he has promised is forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, eternal life, being an adoption of sons and daughters. That's what he's promised, and that's what he promised. And he promises that he will withhold no good thing for us. One author wrote this. He says, remember that God's will for your life is sanctification. That is so important for us to remember. The whole point of this life is for your sanctification, that you and I are becoming more like Jesus Christ, not that you and I are more comfortable. He says, remember that God's will for your life is sanctification, and God tends to use discomfort and trials more than comfort and ease to make us holy. It's a powerful truth. The question is, do you trust him? Do you trust his provision or are you tempted to be able to grasp at things that God really has no intention for you to be able to have? Trust him. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time together. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would move in our hearts, that God, that you would build in us this kind of trust that we've talked about today. God, may some come to faith in Christ. May others come repent of sin of their grasping God, and be able to rest and wait on you. In your precious name we pray, amen.